This is the Solutions for Climate Revolution podcast. My name is Francesca and my guest today is Sir William Hannan. William is, has a profound love of nature and since 2009, he and his wife Ali have made it their mission to nurture people and planet with sustainable best practices when it comes to living and maintaining their home, walled veg garden and their wider grounds of their ancient estate. Dean's Court in Wimborne, Dorset is steeped in history and has been in William's family for almost 500 years. William started his early career living and working in London as an art dealer and moved back to Dorset in 2008. William, your late mother and father had been looking after the estate and your mother, Lady Jane Hannam, especially was ahead of her time, trailblazing in organic growing. And because of her work, Dean's Court was the first kitchen garden to be awarded the organic status by the Soil Association. She hosted a vegetable sanctuary under the Henry Doubleday Research Association and was, symbol, and was a symbol for organic best practice for 45 years. William, your work, William, you work full-time managing the business related to the estate and you have transitioned to permaculture and no dig in the garden, while Ali runs your cafe, known to myself and other locals as the squash court, mainly serving food you have grown, which is super scrumptious. Could you explain permaculture and no dig and talk about your move to those practices? Yeah, of course. <clears throat> permaculture is actually, it's, it's more of a philosophy. Um, and if you take it seriously, it, it relates to an entire lifestyle. But we really just applying it to uh, the kitchen garden. One of the most important aspects of permaculture is a respect for the soil. A lot of scientific research has been done uh, recently on soil and Basically, there's an awful lot more going on under our feet than there is above ground. The soil is an incredibly complicated, uh, sophisticated and fragile structure. And it is, of course, the, the absolutely essential to life on Earth. One of the problems with um, agriculture in the last um, few hundred years or thousand years is that we've been ploughing. And ploughing, of course, breaks up the, the structure of the soil and destroys a lot of the organisms that keep the soil going. It's, it's such a complicated subject and I don't know a huge amount of, about it, but essentially um, the, the, there's one of the most important elements of the soil is um, a network of very, very fine fungal, um, sort of like an, almost like an underground internet called mycorrhizae. Um, and this very fine web conveys information and chemicals between different plants. Most importantly, what it does is it feeds photosynthesizing plants, for instance, the vegetables that we plant, with the minerals that they can't usually get. And in exchange, the photosynthesizing plants feeds mycorrhizae with um, uh, elements that it derives from the air, most notably carbon. One of the important things about mycorrhizae is that there is um, a substance called glomalin, which uh, attaches itself to the very, very finest little filaments underground. And this the substance absorbs CO2 at an incredible rate. Um, what people are starting to understand now is that glomalin under the soil probably absorbs through grasses and other photosynthesizing vegetation more CO2 than the forests and the trees and what we traditionally think of as being great sequestrators of CO2. So the minute you stick a fork or a plough into the ground, you're breaking up this mycorrhizae and it basically stops functioning. You're also interfering with all the, all the fauna that live under the ground. There are thousands and thousands of insects and beetles, which all perform a very important function in bringing nutrients down from the surface 
deep into the soil to feed the roots of vegetation. Um, so this is what we're applying to our kitchen garden. We, we have stopped digging about two years ago. We brought in an expert horticulturalist um, to work and train us up and our gardeners in managing um, the permaculture system. And we're now sort of going it alone. And it's fairly straightforward and fairly simple. And in fact, the lovely thing about it is that um, it's a no-brainer because if you stop digging, you, you've got much less work to do. You save your back. Um, and it's also a very good way of keeping weeds under control. Another problem with digging, of course, is that you disturb the seed bank under the ground and all you're doing is giving all those seeds that belong to the weeds that you don't want a new life. So that's sort of in a nutshell, I think, how permaculture works. That's beautifully said. I think it's one of the things that I, I find quite confusing at the moment is how we're still doing conventional large scale industrial agriculture. It's when we know that these techniques are they're beneficial for the environment, they're beneficial for the soil, and it actually it's a lot less work. Is this is you're you're actually going under a transition in on your land at the moment, aren't you? When you're at the moment where you're working to rewild a hundred acres, could you talk a bit about that? Yes, exactly. Well, we've got um, we've got a very it's a small area of land in terms of agriculture, and for the last fifty years or so, it, we've it's been let to tenant farmers. Um, it's very wet. It's got two rivers, a chalk stream and um, a coarse river running through it. And it's low lying and it floods in the winter quite regularly. But uh, during the drier months, it's actually incredibly fertile and very productive. Nonetheless, um, farmers ha have been uh, putting fertilizers and, of course, herbicides and pesticides on the land to produce a very thick sward of ryegrass, which I think is great if you're a farmer and you want to produce a maximum amount of herbage and silage to feed your cows and for grazing. But it's devastating to wildlife, to the soil, and to the natural order of things. So we're actually taking the land back in October and I'm, actually, I'm being led by the Dorset Wildlife Trust on this, but our first stage is to do, we're doing an ecological survey um, very sadly, of course, <laughs> Wildlife Trust um, employees have been furloughed at the moment, but um, we, I'm now taking it on myself to go out every other day or so and record what I see, uh, which is a great learning curve for me as well. So once, we've, once the ecological survey is done and we know what is there and what the potential of the land is, we aim to really sort of leave it alone as much as possible, but there will be work to do Initially, we've got to pull out a lot of fencing. We've got to probably encourage more hedgerows to grow. Down the wetter end of the land, near the rivers, we'll probably be doing, uh, putting in what's called scrapes, where you literally just scrape a little bit of the soil back over an area about sort of 30 foot wide and let it sort of puddle and get muddy. And that attracts um, waterfowl and all sorts of other um, lovely wildlife. Um, on the drier, at the drier ends, we're probably going to turn that over to wildflower meadows, which will mean we just leave it alone and take probably one cut of very beautiful rich hay in June. And then we can turn a few animals out to graze it off and um, uh, get rid of the sort of, uh, the sort of plants that you don't want. But I'm really keen to try and leave the land alone as much as possible. And a bit like the experiment at Net Castle, which uh, Isabella Tree wrote about so fantastically in her book called Wilding. It, the, the lovely thing will be sitting back and watching to see what, what arrives in the way of wildlife. Um, 
of course, one of the one of the important things is these sort of little wildlife and projects. There are lots of them around the country now are not good if they're just an island. And what I really want to do is try and connect up with other landowners in the area and persuade them to do the same so that wildlife can travel. Because without being able to travel, you don't get, you don't get the sort of uh, the rich biodiversity uh, that you expect to find in nature. Um, one, of the, one of the things we're very lucky to have also is a chalk stream running through uh, the land, the River Allen. And I'm, going to, I'm trying to persuade the other landowners um, on the chalk stream, which is, runs for 13 miles, to um, reserve a margin on either side of the river of about sort of 20, 30 meters to allow wildlife to travel uninterrupted and um, get, you know, get run up and down the, the course of the river. So that's the sort of basic plan, but I'm, I'm very excited about it. It sounds absolutely fabulous. You are returning the land back to nature for by, for all plants animals and humans to enjoy it just sounds the most beautiful project could you explain a little bit about chalk streams and how important they are for the eco ecology and the biodiversity because am i right in saying that chalk screen chalk streams are actually they're in they're endangered because they're being drained is there chalk streams across the the country that are i know chalk streams are unique to the uk but there are some that have dried up I think I watched it on Country File. Yes, well, of course, climate change ha hasn't helped chalk streams at all. Yeah. But it's, um, it's very interesting. Back in the 1990s, I can remember that um, everybody thought that climate change meant, uh, was going to mean drought. And our chalk stream very nearly dried up completely. Um, now, of course, it's the other way around. Um, it's in flood for half the year. Um, but yes, there are, there are a lot of chalk streams which are in danger. One of the problems is water abstraction. Um, water is taken out of our river, uh, Allen, by the local water company. And then when it gets too low, they pump water back into it out of the, um, the aquifer, which strikes me as being extremely silly and a complete waste of energy. Um, and, but you know, these, are, these are all little battles where I think we're gonna have to fight in the future. But um, water is, of course, an incredibly important thing for supporting every, you know, wildlife and humans. And to be interfering with chalk streams, I think is, is, is very dangerous. The River Allen itself, our, our chalk stream is actually in very good condition generally, because uh, it's, um, it, it runs along mainly privately owned farms and land and hasn't been too interfered with. But um, chalk streams are fascinating things. They, um, as you say, the majority of them, I think 85% of the world's chalk streams are in the UK. And of those, um, the majority are actually in the south of England. There's a, um, a strip of chalk, if you like, that runs from Lincolnshire down through the home counties. A branch goes off down to North Kent and then it runs down through Hampshire, Dorset and Devon. And the best area by far, of course, is um, Hampshire, where the rivers Itchen and Test are probably the most spectacular chalk streams. Um, and they're, they're wonderful for a lot of reasons. They've been called by ecologists the rainforests of Great Britain, which I think is a very apt description because they attract massive amounts of wildlife. Um, and the, the important thing about them really is that the water, of course, has been filtered through chalk downlands. So it comes out in springs, which form these chalk streams, in incredibly beautiful, bright, clear, gin clear water, uh, carrying huge amounts of nutrients. And this attracts a lot of invertebrate life. So you get your river flies, you get a lot of bugs that live at the bottom of the river. 
and then you go up the up the sort of trophic food chain to um, to to fish and birds, and then the lovely mammals like uh, the water voles um, and otters. And of course, they are in trouble because one of the main indicator species of the chalk stream is the poor old water vole. And their population has declined by 90-something percent since the 1970s when, um, the, when mink were uh, released into the wild. And mink have been devastating for them. And um, it, it's, it's very hard to know if they're going to survive or not. But they're able to bounce back very quickly because they do have huge litters. Um, so there are problems. We've also lost the native crayfish in our river, where, as a lot of people have, because again, another invasive um, non-native species, the American signal crayfish, was introduced a number of years ago, and this carries a, uh, a plague that kills our own white-clawed native ones. So there are problems, but um, they are still a very a great joy. You've said so many words that I have um not really much idea of what they mean but you are you sound quite the ecologist and i think it's huge hugely inspirational i'm gonna to have to go away and google a lot of things um there are some very good books i can i can introduce you to about chalk streams if you want to get involved that would, that would be wonderful could you could you mention any uh yes there's the one of the one of the really lovely recent ones is by simon cooper um, who I know, who uh, runs a sort of fishing organisation. He's, he's an agent for fisheries and he's passionate about chalk streams and, of course, uh, fly fishing for trout. Uh, and his book is called Life of a Chalk Stream and it's, it's a lovely sort of biography of a chalk stream that he has restored somewhere in Hampshire. He doesn't give the exact um, details of it away. Um, and he describes exactly how the ecology of the chalk streams works, but also talks about the wildlife. And he's moved on since then to write a book about otters, because otters always used to be, of course, the fisherman's enemy, because they do eat the fish that fishermen like to catch. But he had a, a family of otters living on his river, and he wrote a lovely book uh, about how he's come to love them, and um, uh, he, he sees the great benefit of having otters. That's beautiful. I think this is it's an education and a lesson to all of us in how we can all actually live beside one another and, and flourish and thrive. We don't have to. Mm. Oh, it's wonderful. So this is share, share everything with our with our with our wild neighbours. Absolutely. We have more than enough resources. I think it's all about distributing them fairly. I think is I think the challenge that we have, especially over the next coming decades. This yeah. um the idea of having these green stretches along the river to protect the wildlife and create green corridors. When you mentioned about um, keep protecting biodiversity, am I right when, I'm, when I say that it's very important to have green corridors because that means that the, the, the species within the, the green spaces can, can travel and, and, and breed in different, from different spaces? So I'm, I'm not I'm the yeah, biologist, this is what's... This is why yeah. we're in danger of, um, of losing a lot of species and the gene pool becoming weak because there's, there are green islands and within those islands of green space surrounded by concrete jungles, for lack of a better word, we don't have, um, they, yeah. they, they don't have enough genetic variability. But I'm not the biologist, I'm more uh, physics. So it's, is that, because you, yeah, how I'm, does... I'm not how, a biologist either, but yeah, I mean, you're right. I think one of the... One of the worst things we've done to um, the natural world is to introduce roads and railways um, because we have cut 
um, that we've cut a lot of the uh, a lot of the, the traveling uh, off from from animals. And you're absolutely right. Animals have to be able to wander and travel. And of course, if they don't and they start breeding too much in the same place, then of course we all know what happens. You get into breeding, and the gene pool um, is is substantially weakened. So travel is important for every single animal. There are very few animals that really don't travel um, and move around. Even hedgehogs, you know, which we like to think of you know, just can just live in your garden. They need to move around a lot from place to place. That's fascinating. So it's, it's green corridors and it's the connection of, of green spaces to make sure that wildlife can travel. And yeah. am I also it's right? Particularly are the, are the sort of motorways that um, a lot of wildlife use. Um, and migrating birds, for instance, you use rivers because they provide a sort of map, you know, very easy to follow map for them. Um, yeah. Plus a lot of food. Absolutely. So it's very much in our interest to, to protect chalk streams, to protect all rivers and protect the quality of the water. I, um, I started doing a bit of work, um, I think last year in, in understanding, am I right, combined sewage overflows? And I don't know if that has anything to do with the aquifers that you were mentioning, but there's, there's, yeah, there's, um, there's a lot, it worries me that there are these CS, CSMAs, these combined sewage CSO, sorry, combined sewage overflows that are pretty much putting raw sewage into into our rivers and streams when there's a lot of rainfall, which we're seeing a lot because of climate change. Yeah, and it's devastating. I mean, it's a it's an incredibly um, dangerous thing to do. Yes. Hmm. I mean, that's not the only problem. Of course, agriculture itself um, is devastating the rivers and has done for the last sort of fifty years since. Um, farmers started ripping out hedgerows and exposing the soil to erosion. And a huge problem with rivers, not just chalk streams, but all rivers, has been that the, uh, the, the runoff from this agriculture, which is no longer, the soil is no longer held in place by hedgerows, um, has filled the rivers with silt, which causes enormous problems for the ecology of the river. And of course, it carries on out to sea. And if you look at satellite pictures, of rivers which have been, in a sense, polluted by agricultural silt, you'll see great algae blooms uh, in the oceans um, springing up from, from the silt that runs out into the sea. Are those, those are dead zones, am I right? Are those what they call dead zones, where there's been, where life just dies because the algae is just flourishing because of the nutrients and the sediments, the silt? So, yes, it swamps everything else, doesn't it? Yeah. Wow. So we, Protecting our, I mean, we're in a water crisis as much as we are, a freshwater crisis as much as we are in a, in a climate crisis and the two very much go, go hand in hand. And I think um, we are, we, yeah, we all need to be doing more to protect our, to protect our chalk streams, protect our rivers. And the, from what I'm just trying to understand that there's, there's multiple threats coming from what appears to be all directions to, to our aquatic life. So we've got, we've got runoff of, of nutrients and silt from agriculture because of the removal of hedges and that's pesticides and herbicides as well so that destroys other other problems i mean we have a we have a, an ancient monastic pond here in the garden which is fed by our chalk stream and every year we have problems with weed growth either algae or duckweed or canadian pondweed and a lot of it is because there, there are far too many um, nitrates and phosphates in the water which are coming from uh, agricultural runoff. It's, um, 
what what can we as consumers and can young people do especially to to vote with our our feet and our money and empower our purchasing to make sure that we're investing in in beautiful gardens that you have at Dean's Court and your veg box scheme and your cafe and how can we do this when it's, it's difficult under lockdown I know veg box schemes are, are becoming more popular now because people don't want to go out and travel to supermarkets but how mm. can what can what can we do when, when we're hungry how can we vote with our our, our money What's it's the best? incredibly hard for a lot of people this is this mm. is the problem I mean I, I would I would like to say get an allotment and grow mm. your own but of course not everybody can do that um, but I think anything you can do to try and grow your own food is it's not only good for your own digestive system and for the planet but um, it's uh, it's good for mental health as well obviously but I think buying you when you you know consuming food it's very important to think about where it's come from and buy things seasonally because mm. um, you know if you start you start buying um, buying sort of apples in the middle of, you know, in the middle of the spring, like now, you can guarantee they've probably been flown in from Israel or South Africa. And also all those delicious things like avocados, um, which are incredibly difficult to resist. Um, but they are so bad because they, they have to be transported halfway around the world to get to us. Um, so I think eating, try and eat things that are grown locally, try and check if you can when you buy your groceries, that things come from a local source. And if you can, see if they've been grown um, in a sustainable way. Because if they've been grown with fertilizers and chemicals, what you're really buying is water. The problem with fertilizers is that they just, um, they, they fill you, the vegetables with excess water. And of course, the weight of your tomato will be heavier, but you're not actually getting any more nutrition from it. And there's been a study on particularly things like tomatoes recently, which says that the tomato that you bought in the greengrocers 50 years ago um, would have, I think, 70% more nutritional value than the one you buy today, which is pretty shocking, really. That is shocking. You brought me on to one of my um, questions. This is, yeah, what can we do about the nutritional content of our, of our fruit and veg? Like, should we all be taking a multivitamin every day if we can't grow our own? It's something that I've been considering doing that I've dipped in and out of throughout the years, but it's um, in light uh, of the, yeah, sorry. I know, I, but I, I find that whole nutritional supplement industry very, very scary um, yes. because I think a lot of people, a lot of us are, are being suckered into thinking, oh, you haven't got enough vitamin this and enough omega that. And actually a good, healthy, balanced diet, diet provides you with everything. You don't have to even eat um, citrus fruits to get vitamin C. There's loads of vitamin C in brassicas. Mm. And if you, so if you spend the winter eating lovely cabbages and sprouts and kale, you don't need to worry. You're getting, you're getting everything you need. And I think the whole thing about seasonality is that our bodies over the millions of years that they've evolved have adjusted to seasonality. So they, you, your, your digestive system knows what things it, can, it needs to extract from the food you're eating at any particular time of year. Our bodies are so clever. And when you, say, when you said growing your own food um, is good for your gut, were you talking about microbiome? Um, yes, I mean, mm. obviously that. But also um, eating food fresh is so important. Yes. I mean, if you buy, you know, if you buy a, 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 a cabbage off the shelf of a supermarket, 
it, it may not have been, it's probably picked three weeks ago or something mm. and it's been kept in refrigeration. And every day that goes by <clears throat> that that plant is dead, um, it's losing huge amounts of nutrition. And what we forget, of course, is that every, we're the only animal on the planet that eats dead food. Every other animal eats raw living vegetation or if it eats meat, it's freshly killed usually. Um, but we're the only animal on the planet that will let our food sit around, particularly vegetables, for days, if not weeks. And then we cook the hell out of it. And then we wonder why we, we're susceptible to, you know, epidemics like, like cancer. Wow, you've, um, you've totally taken my vision into a whole different perspective. I never, I never thought about the, even when I have to go to a supermarket and I buy organic produce, it is, you're right, it's been, it's been chopped. It's, been it's been dead it's not been connected to the ground for forever how long and that's something else i've always wondered how come sometimes when i do buy organic veg it still says wash before eating because one of the things that i thought was this is what i can't get my head around i thought one of the things i thought about the beauty of organic is not only is it's helping the planet my my body it's i don't have to use so much water washing off all the the stuff that's been sprayed on it to kill the herbicides and the herbicides and pesticides that have been sprayed on it so is it do we have to wash our, our veg because it has been sitting around for, for weeks from wherever it is travelled from? I, I would just I would just avoid anything that has got suspicious labelling like that. I mean, the the the, in, the, the food industry is full of um, fraud and bad practice when it comes to labelling. And the word organic, of course, became incredibly trendy in the 1980s. And I'm afraid a lot of people have jumped on the bandwagon and used the word organic. Um, the Soil Association, you know, tried very hard to, with its, you know, with, with the Soil Association symbol, to provide a guarantee that things were organic. But if things are grown, I think, on a small scale, you can call them organic. Um, if, you're, if you're relatively convinced, if you say you're relatively convinced that it is organic. But um, I think a lot of people now are probably less worried about the labelling when it comes to organic or non-organic. And I think more you've got to think in terms of, you know, has this vegetable been picked recently and how far has it traveled and how old is it? And a lot of people like Hugh Fernley Whittingstall said a few years ago, he said he was more concerned about eating fresh and seasonal vegetables than he was about eating organic. So, but it's a minefield. Labeling is, is really frightening. And I think there are, we're being told a lot of lies so I think you need to use mm. common sense. Going to your local farmer's market provides you with, I think, some sense that things are relatively fresh um, and grown locally. But it is, it is very difficult to know where to go with this. That's such a good point. And one thing I'd love to do in, in this conversation is big up the Soil Association as much as possible because their work is just absolutely, it, it's vital, I think, to the survival of of. of of our of our species and our quality of life because without soil we don't have we don't really have anything and i think Please. could you talk about um your your mother's journey with the soil association and how and all the amazing things she did yes well she was um she was way ahead of her time i mean when uh, when i was a child um in the 1960s um, she had a she had a plot. Um, this wasn't here in Dorset. This was in Kent, where where I actually grew up. Um, and she was growing organic vegetables. And all her friends thought she was crazy. They said, "Why don't you just use fertilizers and sprays and, and everything like everybody else?" Um, so when she arrived here in Dorset with this lovely walled garden, it was um, 
It was a fabulous blank canvas for her. And the Dean's Court Veg Garden became a sort of hub at the time. This was in the mid-1970s for a lot of movers and shakers in the organic movement and in, um, in, the, in this general, general sort of awakening uh, that we were, <clears throat> we were living, all living the wrong way and particularly with regards to food production. And a lot of people used to come here like Schumacher who wrote Small is Beautiful, um, you know, philosophers and a lot of people who, who were very, very interested in trying to get ourselves back to the soil and back to nature came here and helped my mother get this garden going. And then, as you mentioned, she got the first, uh, she was the first garden in the country to be awarded the Soil Association symbol, which was wonderful. Um, she also got very involved with the Henry Doubleday Research Association, um, which one of, one of their key things that they have done in the last 50 years is to preserve what we call threatened vegetables. And again, my mother's friends used to laugh at her for having what she called a vegetable sanctuary. Um, but it was a cruel fact that back in, back in the 70s, um, legislation came in that banned the sale um, uh, of a lot of old, tested, hardy vegetables. And this was very much a move against diversification and a move to standardize everything so that all potatoes were the same size and bananas were all the same length and all that sort of thing. Um, and the Henry Doubleday Research Association found a loophole in this legislation that um, the, the legislators had missed, which meant that you could trade the seed. You couldn't actually sell the vegetables, but you could swap the seed. So what these gardens did, which they established all over Europe, was um, they'd have people growing these old, hardy, traditional um, species of, um, of vegetables. You'd grow the seeds, you'd take the seeds, you would lend the seed to another garden, uh, and then they would pay you back the next year. But it was a very good way of distributing and disseminating um, these vegetables, which basically the authorities wanted to um, make extinct. So that was a very important piece of work. And if it wasn't for the work that they did, we wouldn't have the variety that we do in our, in our vegetable diets today. Wow, that is that is quite shocking because I think everyone's had the saying variety is the spice of life. I just I can't I can't fathom why. I mean, it would be in the name of profit, like you say, the standardization, the the large. Mm. Multi I think pressure, again, this is another huge problem with the world today. I think it was probably pressure from the big um, the, the the big companies. Um, dare I mention Monsanto and people like that who. Mm. Um, are, are getting a very bad name these days. And, but they do have, we gather, very, very powerful lobbying abilities. And they are able to, to get legislation changed or stopped, uh, which is worrying, which is why I think what you're doing with the schools is so wonderful, because everyone's got to think for themselves about this. It's, not, and, you know, it's wonderful having great big movements. Um, but like charity, it all starts at home. If people can just be made aware uh, that there are issues and check it out themselves, read up on it, bone up on what's, what they're consuming um, and try and think about where everything you buy comes from, what the journey to, to, your, to your dinner plate or to your home is involved and what happens to it afterwards as well. You know, the, the problem with plastics and, and packaging is, um, is a huge issue at the moment. It's this whole life cycle of what we buy 
it's the linear econ economics of take make waste where we where we buy something we, we use it but then it goes into landfill i think one of the silver linings that i'm seeing coming up um i think i sort of heard about this maybe last year or the year before but they're actually starting to mine landfill for some of the precious elements that have just been thrown away just because people haven't realized that there's precious metals in a mobile phone or what a hairdryer was made of or just these things but i think food waste is one of the really big problems because i don't think a lot of people realize when they throw their throw their raw peelings that they can use to compost or whether they throw their raw their, sorry their cooked food in the bin that then goes to landfill that biodegrades and then that creates loads and loads of methane and i think lots of people are aware now that methane is a very it has a lot it's it's hugely I think it's is it greenhouse gas potential that that, that little it, acronym it's massively to, mm. to greenhouse gases and I think again there's there's so much one's got to learn about this because I've um, I've been sort of hearing and reading recently that the big problem is not cows everybody was saying that cattle around the globe are contributing to the methane problem but I think you're right I think landfill is by far the biggest problem of all it's, um, mm. and it's insane that we 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 throw things uh, away. The saddest thing of all is that landfill is probably the least destructive when it comes to plastic. Um, because when plastics are, are just literally tossed out um, in the form of litter, um, they end up, end up in the oceans. And we have this problem here with the two rivers that we have. We're constantly pulling, pulling plastics out of them. And Polystyrene is my my particular bugbear. I can't stand the thing. And if we, we have you know local businesses that sell um, takeaway food in polystyrene boxes, and they get chucked into the river, um, and they lodge in the banks of of our rivers here, and then wildlife comes and pulls them out to lick lick the grease off them, and breaks them. They usually foxes or badgers or whatever, and they break them up, and then of course. You know we go out and litter pick but to pick up one box that has been torn into tiny shreds can take five minutes just to get every single little piece out of the grass um and if it doesn't of course get pulled out it then goes out to sea which is you know just as much of a problem and you know we're all aware of the appalling damage being done to the oceans by by plastics absolutely i think this is something that more people are definitely becoming aware of um plastics in the ocean but also what just takes a second to throw away a piece of litter means a lot of time for people who are trying to do the work of repairing the planet and i wanted to just mention today i think was yeah today was david attenborough's premiere of his new movie um a life on our planet unfortunately oh, because great. of yeah there's um radio 4 have released it as a podcast so i've just downloaded it on bbc sounds but it's um yeah i was i was I was really hoping that that was going to introduce another wave of 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 awareness throughout throughout society because it's um just yeah. talking to you about the the all the stresses that we put on the rivers like all the misinformation and fake news about food it's we really are we've got a lot up against us at the moment and I think it's you're so right it's up to all of us to to take the initiative and to to take the responsibility to in, to empower our purchasing and that's why it's such a big um, yeah. Topic in in the schools program that the Naminator Light Company are doing because it's we have the ability to create demand that that we want because yeah. big corporations and and big businesses they will supply us with what has the greatest demand 
and yeah. we have the ability to change the world the way that we want to and we see fit and i think it's the the mm. power behind that message that just needs to be spread because it's yeah it's, it's right, absolutely right is the best way to vote if you stop mm. buying these these goods that damage the environment then they won't be produced anymore and so the laws of supply and demand are incredibly important when it comes to this but it all stems as you say from awareness and and making people aware appear should be so easy now with shouldn't it with social media but it's mm. just incredible at times that the message doesn't get through but i think you do what you can i mean last year i got so fed up with um people chucking rubbish onto our land as they walked along one of the roads here which has railings along it mm. um and you know twice a year i have to go down there with a the team and pick up all the rubbish that gets chucked through the railings there because people are thinking and i think it's a small minority i don't think it's everybody at all but people think if they chuck something away it's gone that's mm. it you know, problem solved it's away and um i got so fed up with this and it was all it was a lot of plastics that i actually ran off a whole series of uh, really grim posters showing wildlife entangled in plastics and 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 you know being uh, having been killed or deformed or mangled by by plastics and i put these graphic photographs up on posters all the way down this road on these railings and you know what it really made a difference i was uh, i was really pleased about that people obviously did stop and think about what was going to happen to that that six pack you know plastic thing mm. that you um you throw which is one of the most dangerous things you can chuck into the into the wild um so that did help but i think people get fatigue as well so i after after six months i took the posters down again because i thought you know people you don't want to overdo it but mm -hmm. i might i might i might do it again <laughs> i think it's a beautiful idea i think it, it's shocking but i think it's what it's what we need we need because there's a very interesting thing i learned recently which is that people don't listen to research they listen to experiences and i think it's having the, the seeing and experiencing this image of seeing an animal tortured by plastic in, in its home that someone has thrown into nature it makes i think it, it does it has that shock factor which david attenborough is had so much success with spreading the awareness about plastic it shocks people into actually thinking twice about, about really, what they did yeah yeah um the problem of course with all this is that a lot of it's preaching to the converted the sort of mm. people who switch on like you and me and absolutely love david attenborough's programs are not you know we're not the sort of people who are <laughs> chucking litter and plastic away we've got to get people who don't watch those programs um aware of this problem and i think you're absolutely right we've got to start exposing them to to graphic images mm. uh, and um you know education is 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 such an important thing but the you know this the david attenborough thing i think is very interesting as well because there's there's been in the last sort of 30 years or so an awful lot of um wildlife tourism which i've started to come to think is actually also very damaging and unnecessary and people going out and watching the gorillas in 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 west africa and doing you know going on safaris and all that sort of thing but actually you know, you, get, you get a much better view of wildlife watching a david attenborough program mm -hmm. than you ever would being physically there in the wild um and i think we've got to adjust adjust our um our habits we've got to stop traveling so much and i think this coronavirus if any good anything good comes out of it i think it will be that the travel industry i'm afraid is going to take a huge hit 
and travel will become, I'm afraid, incredibly difficult and expensive, I think, for, for, for the majority of people, which is, is sad for people, but it's a very good thing for the planet. There's definitely something there. It's, um, I think I'm, I've been so happy to see the, the air clearing, the waterways clearing, the pictures that are being put up around from before and after COVID-19. I think Absolutely. One of the, it's yeah it's it's wonderful to see and it just shows you how resilient nature is and also the damage that we were causing and i mm. i i find it it's so one of the things i i was mentioning and i'm chatting to sort of friends and people about before before covid19 was how lucky we were to live in a globalized world where you could order something from halfway around the world and it would arrive on your doorstep within a week yeah that kind of luxury is absolutely unprecedented and I think that that kind of I, I'm so excited to to see the stimulation of local local economies in providing all of the goods and services that we've been so used to getting globally and I'm, I'm yeah. really buzzing for that because I think it's um it's so important being at home getting back into some traditional crafts and making bread and sewing and and um fending for themselves a bit more and making their own things. And I think, you know, if one of the, um, I think one of the most uh, interesting uh, places I did go to, talking of travel, mm -hmm. which very naughty, was a couple of years ago, I went to Transylvania. Wow. And there you can still see people living um, an incredibly beautiful, sustainable, rural life, quite a hard life. But you have these villages where people have a house there and then they have, about three acres of land running up the hill behind the house and they keep you know one cow one pig a few chickens they grow their own vegetables they have a little meadow and literally uh, up until sort of 20 years ago or something they made uh, apps they made every single thing for themselves their clothes their equipment their tools they grew their own food and there's another very inspiring book by someone called William Blacker called Along the Enchanted Way, which describes his experiences when he went to Transylvania just after the Berlin Wall came down. He was sort of one of the first Westerners, I think, to get in there. And he discovered a totally medieval world that we didn't know anything about. And he lived there with, with, the, um, with the people and worked the fields with them and, um, you know, bought a scythe for himself and got involved in the whole, in the whole system. And, it's a it's a really interesting read and but sadly of course Romania is now becoming westernized now that it's joined the EU and I think you know that those sort of communities are, are are coming to an end as well but um if you want to see how people used to live in the middle ages go to Romania and Transylvania it's fascinating such a good tip thank you I'll go by train if I do get yeah. to go yeah <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Or bicycle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would love to do that. That would just be, yeah, cycle around Europe. There's so many yeah. stories well, I mean, of mine. Got, I did actually cycle around. It's a little trip. Yeah, it was a little cycling trip with some friends organised by um, a company um, that, that does these things. And it was fascinating. It was really great. Yeah. Sounds like quite the adventure. Do you think mm. with, with COVID-19, do you think there will still be progress towards sort of developing our, our Western way of life more? Do you think there's going to be a bit of a wake up to actually some of the, the things and methods that we were using before we had this massive boom with NASDAQ and the internet in the, 
in the 1990s that actually some of the older, more traditional methods are better? How do you, do you think there'll be a split? What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's extraordinary. We're only a month or so into, into this extraordinary situation. And yet you, you look back on those days of sort of frenzied buying, buying and selling of shares on the stock market and this outrageous consumerism that we've all been a part of. We're all guilty mm -hmm. of it. Um, and it sort of looks old fashioned now. And I think, um, I think it, a lot of people are going to uh, draw back in and stop consuming. But of course, it's, that's going to create its own problems as well, because the global economy is so based on, uh, on cheap goods. And I think we've got to understand that we need less things, but, and we're going to have to pay more for them. Um, mm. Food is ridiculously cheap. Um, mm. it, and it should be the most expensive thing yeah. in, your, in your monthly that comes out of your monthly pay packet. I um, agree with you. I think there's um, people often say to me, um, it's so difficult for me to buy fresh fruit and veg, like I can't afford to buy organic. And I said, it's not fresh food and organic produce isn't expensive. It's because the cheap processed things are so cheap. That's, I think that's the, the new standard that we're at. It's things, are, things that are chemical and so processed are so cheap because they're manufactured at such scale it makes the things that are good for us look healthy, look, look expensive, sorry. And it's, I think yeah. one of the things that I'm, I'm really nervous about is the embodied of water of all these processes and how, yeah, it's just. And the use of water in the production of clothes. I mean, this is another yes. thing that I find terrifying is the clothes, the clothes industry and the waste. And so I read recently that the, um, the average person in the UK buys a piece of, uh, the, or the average lifespan of a piece of clothing in the UK is five weeks. No. So you go, you buy it, you wear it a couple of times, and then you literally chuck it away. Whether it's made of cotton or whether it's made of even worse, man-made fibres, it doesn't matter. But um, my last birthday back in September last year, I, I said, right, I'm going to try not to buy any single item of clothing for a year. Um, so and cool. Well, no, I didn't quite. I haven't quite managed, but I have really cut down. I bought two pairs of shoes and two shirts, um, and um, when I had a suit made when I was in India, which is really, but, but um, of you know all linen, and I think linen is a is a is a uh, a textile that we really need to try and get back into our lives because we can grow it in Europe, um, and it's an incredibly useful thing because. Not only do we, can we get clothes out, lovely, beautiful clothes out of linen and textiles and sheets and bedding, but it also produces flax. And um, flax seed itself has enormously great benefits for our health and, I, uh, and the oil. I didn't realise that flax seed was from linen. I take flax seeds every day. I have them on my, my cereal. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So does my wife, She's very keen on flax oil. Yeah, she mashes it up with a banana every day. But yeah, it's all the same thing. So, I mean, there are, there are wonderful crops around that we seem to have forgotten about mm. now. We, we, you know, and we, we can grow wonderful things here in Europe. We've got a fabulous climate. I mean, the, the English climate is, is amazing for growing things. You know, we're the envy of the gardeners of the world because we have this cool... Um, damp climate where um you know you, you can grow almost anything here That's apart so from seeds citrus fruits and things like that but um yeah that's such a an incredibly beautiful point yeah about that we are so lucky that we are so lucky to have the wilderness the biodiversity and the climate that we do and i think it's 
it's one of my favourite quotes just to go back to education is um, if you want to change the world you have to change education and I think that is well that is one of the things I'm trying to do with this school programme here and to to raise yeah. awareness of the knowledge that, that people like yourself trailblazing in in the things yeah. that need to become the future and it's Exactly. You're so right. And it, this should be, this should be the, the, you know, this should be in with the three R's, shouldn't it? You should, mm. shouldn't perhaps waste time learning Latin. Every child should be learning about the environment, okay. um, ecology, um, because if they don't, I mean, if people, if we don't wake up soon, um, you know, we have got very little time left. It's, it's very scary. And I really, it hit me really hard when I was talking to some, some young people about how, how scared they are for their future. I, um, I've been doing this for almost 15 years. I started my journey to um, contribute to the enhancing the efficiency of solar panels when I was 15, went to college, studied physics and went throughout uni, specialised in, in optics and photonics to contribute to, to solar panel research. And mm -hmm. it's, for, yeah, for my journey over a decade, I've been, I thought I was worried, but this kids today, young people today, it's even yeah. more scary because it's all across the media. It's all in the news and people are so much more aware of it. But every day you see people making the same choices and it's the, the, the education behind the behavior that is what we've really got to tap into. And I'm yeah it's so true it's so true and i think um it must be very exciting being involved with with solar because um all our energy comes from the sun and <laughs> the more directly you can take it from the sun the the, the less damage you're going to do in consuming energy this was my this was the, what i realized when i was 15 yeah i thought i was just like well if fossil fuels are coming from the sun but they've just taken millions of years to to form why on earth are we not just using solar panels on everything they might yeah. be less efficient initially but yeah. the overall process is yeah the is real vast. problem is storing it isn't it and that's um that's something that we haven't really sort of got to grips with yet because i mean the there's a you know there's going to be an there's an enormous rush going on for to buy the chemicals to make batteries, isn't there? And I gather that in a lot of west you know a lot of areas of uh, I think it's it Nigeria or West Africa where they they mine mm -hmm. you know much more about this than me, but the some of the important um, chem chemicals that you have to use in in batteries are causing another problem you know elsewhere in the land in, in the planet where um, where the mining is taking off for these things. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Storage is, is al has always been the problem. I've, I've, I was quite interested in the idea of um, hydrogen as a, as a potential alternative because the end product when you burn it is steam. So there's no pollution whatsoever. Um, it's very difficult to separate uh, oxygen and hydrogen from water. It takes a lot of energy, but if you could harness that from, from some sort of solar, um, power or wind power then you've got a very very powerful um form of form of energy which can, can drive cars you can pipe it into your homes and use it the same way as you use gas um but no one seems to be sort of looking at the, those kind of options yet hydrogen is something i i keep i hear i hear about it i'm not i don't know i can't claim to know much about it and batteries mm. i I know a little bit about it's the solid state physics sort of area that I studied, but it's um, it's supercapacitors which are sort of the what batteries are being manufactured at the moment are 
Um, I think the, the technology is incredible and you're right, I think that it is the solution, but it does it where they resource these materials from for the batteries is has really got to be thought about extremely carefully because I saw this was back in December that they were mining the ocean floor to get cobalt and I just thought oh my goodness this is just opening a whole new can of worms like it might not look like there's anything on the ocean floor because it's so deep down but unearthing and lifting up all that sediment from the ocean floor that's been settled for probably thousands of years and covering all of those of life forms is just going to create other huge issues later down the line so that's why i got really excited about mining landfill i thought if we can do that and we can open up landfill and start to get all the resources that we've thrown away then that would yeah. just be so much it better seems to make sense but at the end of the day none of these things are sustainable are they um we really need to be sort of looking for um you know forms of energy that uh, have you know really zero footprint at all um but yeah it's going to be a journey but i think um there, there's so much there's so much to worry about at the moment isn't there there really is it's um yeah there's a lot to to take on for people who are switched in switched on to the sort of the forward thinking vibes of looking towards the future and what they can do now but i think it's thanks to people like you striving for the incredible things that nature has to offer is is what's going to get us through and i just oh i would just i'd love to end on that note because i could just talk to you and set the world strike for, for for ages but i i'm very aware that you have very important work to do on dean's court and i just wanted to thank you so much for your time everything that you're doing and for spreading the amazing messages that you have through this podcast today and it's just yeah it's been wonderful to chat to you william so thank you so much Oh, thank you, Francesca. It's been a real pleasure and um, hope to meet you soon. Thanks very much. That would be wonderful. I would love to yeah, organise a time when I can pop around the corner because I live just down the road from you and we can yeah, take some pictures and pop them on the, um, the yeah, where social I, media where? Instagram account. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, just right. by, yeah, you're, yeah, your allotments are just opposite. Beautiful. Right. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. fabulous. My right. other half, he's a chef and he's got his... Um, He's got his eye on one of the allotments. So. Oh, great, great. Yeah, I hope you can, I hope you can get one. Yeah. <laughs> Ditto, it would be wonderful. He's growing currently. Um, we've got 60 tomato plants in the kitchen windowsill. We've got uh, kohlrabi, blueberry plants. We've got, oh, there's just, there's soil all over my house at the moment. So. <laughs> that sounds healthy, yeah. Yeah, it's good, it's beautiful. He's, um, he's the new wave of chef being half kitchen, half in the kitchen, half in the garden, so there's... That's cool, oh, that's lovely, yeah. Well, lucky you, living with a chef, that's, um, that's a real bonus, isn't it? It's good at the moment, because he's been furloughed, I say, well, it's the, one of the silver linings of him being furloughed, but before I was the one who always did the cooking, because shame he'd always be too tired, which I don't mind, I love cooking. It's wonderful, yeah. but I'm not as good as he is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope he's managing to find some flour, because we can't, <laughs> it's really difficult. Yeah, we, um, I luckily had, um, a bag, not a bag, a, a, yeah, I suppose it comes in a bag, flower, a flower bag, yeah. I had one, yeah. one and a half that I'd saved from when I tried to make bread at Christmas, so we've got that in. Yeah, yeah I can always yeah. drop some round if you need some. You can't find yeast either, that's the, that's the real problem. But um, anyway, you've got to look into your ways of making yeast, I suppose, now. <laughs> <laughs> Homemade everything. I think yeah. with humans left to their own devices, it's... Um, in lockdown there are going to be some incredible innovations and 
yeah inventions that are going to be coming out i'm really excited to see to see how we how we thrive from this so it's yeah, yeah i think um yeah let's let's hope something good comes out of it i'm sure it will yeah. oh me too mm -hmm. thank you so much again william it's right. been well, incredible come, to chat to you yeah and come come around and have a look whenever you feel like it wonderful yeah. thank you i'll email right. you in a second set that up thank you so much Not all the best. thanks a lot take care thank you you too bye, bye.